It really is good to be with you. We are uh, in our third week of a sermon series we're calling A Fulfilled Christmas. And the reason why we're calling it A Fulfilled Christmas is because we are looking at passages in the Old Testament that prophesy, that foreshadow, that talk very specifically and clearly about the coming Messiah, whose name is Jesus the Christ. And that's obviously what we celebrate this time of year. And it's just so exciting to know that this book right here is about Jesus. You knew that, didn't you? I hope you knew that. It's about Jesus. It's not just a bunch of history. It's not just about Israel. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus even said to the two men on the road to Emmaus, right after his resurrection, as he was talking to them, that he opened the scriptures, we're told in Luke 24, and he shared all the things from Moses and the prophets concerning himself. This is the story about our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is so exciting. It's so helpful, I hope, to all of us to look at different portions of the Old Testament that point so clearly to his coming. And in some cases, to his second coming. That is just an exciting thing that we get to experience. You know, a couple weeks ago, uh, I got to share a little bit about Genesis chapter 22, the foreshadowing of God the Father and Jesus on the cross when God told Abraham to take his son Isaac, the son of the prophet, prophecy to, to Mount Moriah to put him as a sacrifice on an altar and slay him. And then God stopped him and just commended Abraham for his obedience. Last week, Kondo shared about the fact that the rock in the desert as the nation of Israel was thirsty, dying of thirst. The rock that Moses struck was Christ. 1 Corinthians, 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 tells us that the rock was Jesus Christ. So there are all of these different prophecies, all of these different foreshadowings, verses throughout the Old Testament. Some predict and have said several hundred that point to our Savior and our Lord. And that's such a beautiful thing. And one of the reasons why this series, to me, is so vital to all of us is because it's rooted in biblical hope. God is all about hope for us. He is. You know, our perspective of life can be so microscopic. We can be so fretful and so worried and so anxious about today, the events of today, the events of this week. And we get kind of this tunnel vision about life is this life. And we tend to think only this life. And we know that's not right because the word of God talks about eternity. The word of God talks about Christ's kingdom. But I think our mindset can become so absorbed by the temporal, the here and now. And to a large degree, that is really not biblical hope because biblical hope is rooted in Christ. Biblical hope is rooted in the word of God. Biblical hope is rooted what God has said is true. Everything else is wishful thinking. Amen? It really is. And so... I want to talk today about hope, and we'll be looking at a passage in a bit. I have a couple other places we're going to jump around to, but we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your Bible and want to be turning there, 
Um, I want to talk about hope because I think a lot of people aren't very hopeful. You know, I don't know if you're one of these people. I have been labeled this for a long time. I don't know if some of this is (laughs) DNA, you know, temperament. I don't know if some of this is the family I was raised in, whatever. But I just tend to be a pretty positive person, I guess, what I've been told. In fact, positive, hopeful is a good thing, I think, but a lot of people don't think so. You know, I'm curious, where are you on the very positive, very hopeful spectrum and the, these people over here call themselves realists. I'm like, oh, that's a nice way to talk about your pessimism. (laughs) Realist. Oh, okay. All right. That's fine. That's good. Um, But, you know, I was thinking about some things that are said about us optimistic, positive people which some people think are a little obnoxious sometimes. It's okay. It's all good. Because we got to be positive about those people, right? <laughs> so here's a couple things, a couple phrases. Now, I've, I've tweaked them a little to make them sound a little more interesting and funny. But these are the kind of things I've, been, I've had said about me. And those of you see the bright side, glass half full, that kind of stuff. And, and there are many of you like that too. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times somebody has said to me, you are so incredibly naive. Now, I am in my 60s, okay? Can you imagine me in my 30s? Yes, I was very, very naive and bad about that. How about dude? The dude thing often comes. You are overly optimistic. Come on. I've gotten that. Jeff, your perspective is so unrealistic. Come on, get real. I get that one. You must be the most gullible person I have ever met in my life. I've heard that one. Wait until you have more life experience. Then you won't trust anybody. Oh, yeah, that's where I want to go, no doubt. You know, that sounds great. How about this one, a dad to a son? Son, you didn't give him money, did you? Why do you always do that? Why do you always let people take advantage of you? Here's my last one. I want you to know that I'm, somebody will say, I want you to know I'm getting a t-shirt for your birthday for you that says glass half full person. Somebody needs to break the glass. You know, it's like, okay, here's the deal. I am somewhat of a realist too. I am. And many of you are as well. Here's my bottom line about being a hopeful, positive, optimistic person. What is your hope in? You know what? That's the bottom line, my friend. Well, I'm just kind of hoping things will turn out. No. No. It doesn't work that way. Because biblical hope is so solid and real and true and the foundation of our lives. And that is Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is our Savior, Jesus is coming back, and God wrote a book, and he's already written the ending, and it's a really great ending if you are a child of God, amen? It is a great ending. That's what we need to think about. Paul said it this way, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. If Christ who is our life is revealed, then we shall be revealed with him in glory. 
Does your mind go there every day? Does your mind go there at least sometimes? Because my friends, that's what biblical hope is. (laughs) Who we are in Jesus. Is life hard? Yes, yes, yes. Life is hard. I can't tell you, and again, I, I try to be very kind about these things, but just I constantly hear, I'm so freaked out, I'm so stressed out, I'm so, you know, struggling, I'm so this, you know, it's just like people are, have this franticness to their lives. And okay, blame COVID, blame whatever, but Jesus is our rock, he's our refuge. Jesus is our Lord. He is our King. Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit have written the script script for all human history and eternity. And it's a great ending, guys. It's a great ending. And we get to be part of that. So this morning when I'm talking about hope, and that's what I want to talk about, I'm talking about biblical hope. Hope that is rooted in truth. Hope that is rooted in things that will not change because the God of the universe said so, okay? Now, I want to share with you before we jump into Isaiah 9, we'll eventually get there, but I want to share a few passages with you that are such incredibly beautiful passages on this topic of biblical hope. Why we can live with joy. Why we can be excited about life and the God who is in control, not just of today, but of the eternal future that lies before us. 1 Timothy 6, 17. This is such a good verse. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I mean, God even wants joy in our lives, too, for our enjoyment. Do not put your hope in things that perish. Do not put your hope in things that you cannot control. Don't. That's his point. Look at this. Book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, do a, do a, a little word study or a phrase study on blessed hope in the New Testament. Those of you that like to study your Bible, because it refers to the second coming. And it's called the blessed hope. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our hope. I love 1 John 2, excuse me, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Praise Jesus, right? But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purifies themselves just as he is pure. The fact that we live with biblical hope changes our lives, my friends. It's one of the things that makes us different than those who don't know Christ. Because our hope is rooted in biblical hope on the fact that the God of the universe is in control and his thoughts and intentions toward you are nothing but good, even though at times life is hard. That's his promise to us. Hebrews 11.1, many call this the biblical definition of hope. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance 
about what we do not see. Why? Because so much of our hope is future hope. (laughs) It's yet to be experienced hope. But if we believe this word, it has a great ending for us, my friends. It does. And I think what is just so helpful to me and and hopefully to a lot of us is just to kind of live there more often, to dwell there more often, to start your day. I'm a child of of Jesus. Is my day going to be easy? Probably not. There's going to be hard stuff and difficult things and frustrating things in my life. (laughs) But I have this blessed hope. I have this incredible assurance that I'm a child of God. I'll spend eternity with him and his intentions for me are always good. And by the way, you know what else he said? I will never leave you or what? Forsake you ever, ever. That's what he has said. So that's our biblical hope. So when we talk about hope, when I share today about hope, and that's what I believe this passage in Isaiah 9 is about, that's what I want us to think about, okay? Okay, so if, are you in Isaiah 9? If you have your Bible, if not, we'll have some verses up on the screen in a minute. But I got to give you context because that's always good Bible study. Don't just jump in. What, what has the author been talking about? So I'm going to give you a super, super brief context. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet, lots of prophets. Lots of the books in the Old Testament are books by prophets or about the, the life and ministry of prophets. Isaiah was a prophet. What was happening in Israel at this time was very common, tragically, of the whole history of Israel as it's recorded in Scripture. They were just about ready to be judged by God because of their sinfulness, because of their rebellion, and because of their, their idolatry. And as you read your Old Testament... Book of Judges, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, so much of our Old Testament, it's like that's where they constantly went. Follow after idols, disobey God, live in sin, and God would send his prophets, and he'd send his prophets to, to rebuke them at times, to challenge them, to call them to repentance, to call them back to God, Jehovah, who was the only true God. And they might do it for a little while, and then boom, rebellion again, idolatry again. As we're going to get into Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 8, actually most of the first few chapters of Isaiah is about how rebellious, how idolatrous the nation of Israel had been, and how God had called Isaiah to preach a message of judgment. And that judgment was that they were going to be invaded by a very wicked kingdom, the Assyrians. So that's what they are on the verge of. You think COVID's bad? (laughs) This is what they are on the verge of as we jump into chapter 9. And I'm going to actually pick up in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. Words will be up on the screen as well. Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness, here's a glimmer of hope, (laughs) have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you 
as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Here's what I want us to see. In the midst of this impending judgment on the nation of Israel, God gives hope. God gives them hope. God gives them what I'm going to call anticipated deliverance from their impending doom, anticipated deliverance. The word you appears three times in these verses, and they're all God the Father, okay? You have enlarged the nation. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Now, let me talk about hope that comes in the midst of facing tragedy, in the midst of facing incredible difficulty. When you get a little glimmer of hope, that can kind of lift your spirits, right? (laughs) Think about this happening in your life, whether it's some kind of a medical thing or a financial thing or something with your kids or whatever. Things have been just brutal and really incredibly hard, and there's a glimmer of hope. What do we often think when we get a glimmer of hope? (laughs) Good good stuff's going to happen today. Good stuff's going to happen tomorrow. But you know what? This is how God works. It's not because he doesn't love us. But often the glimmer of hope still means, oh, you're going to have to wait. How many of you hate to wait? How many of you think hating is the worst? Or waiting, hating's bad too. But what I meant to say is waiting. (laughs) Waiting is the worst. Oh, it's so hard for so many of us. So it's like, God, I'm enduring, I'm enduring, I'm enduring, I'm enduring. And now we get a, there's something that gives us hope. And we're like, oh, yes. And then it's like, oh, no, you're going to have to wait quite a while longer. But help is on the way, but not today. Isn't that hard? Man, I've been there about all kinds of things in my life. So have many of you. But let me tell you about Waiting. You know, I I often throw out, do a word study in the Bible of this word. Wait is a great word to do a word study, especially if you don't like it. (laughs) Because it is absolutely incredible what God often does while we are waiting. While we are waiting for him to change things. While we are waiting for him to solve the struggle. While we are waiting patiently on him to intervene in a way that gives us a sense of relief. God's pretty into waiting. <laughs> he is. And here, but here's what I've seen, okay? I have seen that often the waiting is where the best stuff happens. What do I mean by that? God's solution so often, my friends, is not, I need this, I don't like what I'm going through, and just... God's saying, okay, here you go, here you go. Like keeping a kid quiet that's throwing a fit in the store. You know, here you go. God's not much on just pacifying us. I don't think he is. That's not my experience. 
God wants to develop and train us during the waiting. That's why, my friends, and I speak of not just because of my age, but I've walked with Jesus for 46 years. I have. What I have seen in my life, in the lives of people who I admire their walk with Christ, they've known him for 50 years, 60 years, whatever it might be. As you look back six years, six, let's start with six months. I'll start with six months. Six months and God answers the prayer or answers the response. You can say, thank you. I wasn't ready back then for this answer. Sometimes that happens when you wait six years. And God has done some pretty remarkable things in your life, maybe the, the, the life of you and your spouse, whatever it might be. And you look back and say, thank you for not giving me that back then. And sometimes you might wait six decades and God answers and God responds. Because often, my friends, it's in the waiting that God does his transforming work, amen? That is so often how he does it. Because often, it's not getting what I want. It's always becoming who he wants me to be. I'm going to say that again because I got a little junk in my throat. It's not getting what I want. It's becoming who he wants me to become or to be. That seems to always be the way God works. It's about him making us into who he wants us to be. Can I tell you something? This anticipated deliverance, and we're going to see more about it as we get down to verses 6 and 7, between this prophecy of the Messiah, this prophecy of this king who would come, this prophecy of this child who would be born, is given 700 years before Jesus' birth. (laughs) Talk about waiting 700 years. Seriously, God? Yeah. Yeah. Anticipated deliverance. Sometimes we need to wait. Why? Because God has his perfect plan. And we need to remember that. Now, before I I go to to the next verse, I want to show you something um, over in Isaiah chapter 7. Okay, so we're in 9, so we go back a couple chapters to chapter 7, because God, through Isaiah, had already given an inkling, a little bit of foreshadowing about this coming Messiah. Look at verse 13, Isaiah 7, 13 and 14. When Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Oh, huh. That sounds familiar to me. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, it's part of what we call the Christmas story in Matthew. (laughs) 
Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, all this took place. This is referring to the angel coming to Joseph to say, don't put Mary away, don't divorce Mary, which he wasn't going to, but basically what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. A clear prophecy of the birth of Jesus right there. God with us, God in our midst, God dwelling among us. That's what the word Emmanuel means. God with us, God in the flesh. So that's the anticipated deliverance of the Savior. I want to go on into verse 6 of Isaiah 9. This will sound familiar too. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. From the anticipated deliverance to the awaited Messiah, that's who he is. You know, the Israelites knew something about the coming Messiah, the anointed one. This verse, Isaiah 9, 6, is one of the clearest prophecies of the birth of Christ in all of the Old Testament. And that's what we see. And I think what's so awesome about this is we are given these four characteristics, these four qualities of who the Messiah will be. These talk about his personhood. These talk about his character. Let me, let me give you some thoughts about these. Number one is wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. I thought about how interesting it is that the word counselor is used. I think this refers to his wisdom. Let me tell you about this Hebrew word counselor. This word simply means one giving wise advice. He is our wonderful counselor. Isn't Jesus that? Hey, let me ask you a question. When you're struggling with a decision, when you're struggling with somebody, who do you ask first for advice? Is it Jesus? (laughs) Let's go there. Let's go to him. Do you know that we're told in James chapter 1, verse 12, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask what? Of God. And God says, absolutely, I'll give you wisdom. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't make fun of us. He doesn't do any of that. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You know, another way to get his counsel, there's a lot of it revealed right here to us. Some of us can have a tendency to say, oh, when I need wise counsel, I go to my spouse. And some of you say, uh, no. <laughs> Some of you say, I go to my dad, I go to my mom, I go to my best friend, I go to my mentor, this person in my life who's about 20 years older than me. And I say, great secondary counselors. They have their place. He's the wonderful, he's the ultimate counselor. Ask Jesus first. Can we remember that? Ask Jesus first, Lord You know I'm struggling with this decision. I need your help. I need your input. I need you to speak 
to me. I need your spirit to give me some clarity. I need to understand what to do. He is our wonderful counselor. Second, he's our mighty God. I think this refers to power because of the word mighty that is used here. Uh, Often in the Old Testament, this word mighty, which just means very powerful, is connected to the word warrior. Mighty warrior. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like strong, powerful, and that's who Jesus is. Do we sometimes have a Jesus who's really anemic? It almost sounds bad for me to say it that way, but do we not believe he is powerful? He is powerful. He can, he can orchestrate and change situations, and he can transform people. And he, he, you know, he spoke the world into existence by the word of his mouth. Is he powerful? Amen, he is. Absolutely, he is. And yet, I think often we forget that, right? He's the mighty God. One thing that uh, I was thinking about is, is we've been talking about these prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament is that it's very interesting. This is something I hope might be helpful if you don't know this. It's very interesting that there are prophecies in the Old Testament about the Jesus born in Bethlehem, the first coming, often referred to as the suffering servant Messiah, And then there are prophecies about his second coming. He's referred to as the conquering king. And so often when we see these prophecies about him, they they don't seem quite the same. Same Jesus, two comings. Okay, does that make sense? It's so important to understand that. And many people say the reason why the Israelites and the Jews and even some of the scholars did not understand that Jesus was the Christ is because they had only focused maybe on prophecies about the Messiah that were the conquering king prophecies. And yet they're all about Jesus. Some relate to his first coming, some relate to his second coming. He was powerful as the one who was born in Nazareth, was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. He was powerful. But the conquering king who will come, just read uh, Revelation chapter 19, the conquering king who will come is not meek and mild Jesus. He is the conqueror on a stallion <laughs> who will come and rule and reign on this earth. That's who he is. So he is the mighty God. The next title descriptive title is he's the everlasting father. I think this refers to his love. I do. You know, it's so interesting that Jesus is not referred to as the father in the New Testament as we understand him. In fact, he referred to God the father as father, and he he is referred to as the son. So what that says to me, this word father, is why is he called everlasting father here? Why is that term used? And I think it's because it's a very endearing term. I think it's a term of love. I do. Father is used of God. When that title is used of God, it, um, it often relates to the father's love for his children. 
the father's love for his son. So I, I really believe that one of the obviously predominant characteristics of our Savior is love. And then the last one is Prince of Peace. You know, often when we think of the word peace, we think personal calm. I feel at peace. I feel calm in my spirit. And that's true. Remember Jesus said in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you so on. There is a calm peace that God gives. But when in the Bible, when they're talking about a king or a conqueror or a warrior, the peace means no war, no more battle, no more conflict is kind of the idea. And so he is the prince of peace. Why? Because he will be the sovereign ruler of the universe. And when he comes to reign on this earth for a thousand years, he will be the king and the sovereign Lord. Now, again, what's so amazing to me is this is a a description of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given seven centuries before his birth, before he was born as a baby in a manger. Verse 7, of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So this is kind of my third thought. Number one, we talked about the anticipated deliverance, the awaited Messiah, and now it's the Almighty's kingdom. The Almighty's kingdom, his kingdom. Did you see David's throne? In this verse, so there's some reference to David and David's kingship. David lived and was king about a little over 200 years before Isaiah was on the scene. Some of you know this, referred to as the Davidic covenant. God's covenant that he made to David about Messiah will come through your house, will come through your lineage. This is where it's recorded in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, where it says, your David's house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Through David would come a king and his kingdom, which would be eternal. That's the point. You see, there's a reason why when Jesus in the gospel was walking on the earth, he was periodically referred to as son of David, son of David, because he was of the line of David. If you look at the genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and of Luke, you'll see David's name right in there. So he was of that lineage. The Almighty's kingdom, I think the key word is eternal, forever, forever. This past Thursday, my wife, Kathy, and I did something we've done. We didn't get to do it last year because of COVID for quite a few years. Part of this is because my wife is a violinist and plays in an orchestra and has for lots and lots of years. So we got to go to Fort Wayne and hear the Fort Wayne Philharmonic Orchestra play the Messiah. And... um, Before we met and got married, I wasn't a real big classical music fan. I'm just saying. But that I have 
developed more of appreciation, absolutely, over the years for it. I'm familiar with the Messiah, she, with, with Handel's Messiah, and um, whenever you hear the music for the Hallelujah Chorus, many of you know what tradition is. Everybody stands. And then you, <clears throat> gosh, then you begin to hear this music in these words. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then that kind of sends shivers when you have an orchestra, a choir, four incredible soloists all just belting that out. And then when you hear, and he shall reign forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's like, this has got to be heaven's music. It's just got to be. I don't know if there's like a country version of the hallelujah chorus. I actually doubt it. Sorry, country fans. But when you hear that and experience that, it is so incredibly moving because it's right out of this. It is right out of Isaiah 9. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what Christmas ultimately is about, my friends. That's what this blessed hope is, that we get to be part of the kingdom of the one who will reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. That needs to be where we live a whole lot more often in our minds, and in our hearts. Amen? It really does. Pray with me, please. Thank you, Father. Wow. Just thinking about our Savior. He is... He's beyond amazing. The suffering servant, Jesus, who humbled himself, became a a helpless baby lived a a perfect life, healed, loved, died, paid the penalty for the sins of the world, rose again. We are so grateful, Father, in, in so many ways to live on this side of the cross so that we know him through the stories, through the truth of the word of God, and now through our own relationships with him. And a day is coming when he's coming back. Lord, help us to live with greater anticipation for that day. And may our lives, even as it says in 1 John, be purified and more holy and righteousness and devoted and obedient because of the reality that he's coming again for us. But Lord, I pray, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here this morning who, especially those that are just, so anxious and so fretful and so discouraged that you would give us a greater glimmer that becomes so much more than a glimmer that you have wrote, you have written the entire history of this world and eternity And it's the most incredible happy ending there could be. Thank you that we could be part of that. Lord, we love you. 
We want to worship you. And Lord, just may we understand that you are our blessed hope and you're the one that gives us comfort and peace and strength and even the the ability to wait on you because of the good work you do in us while we wait. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.